I'm Peter Creighton, and welcome to The Looking Glass, a program that examines the stories behind personal interests. That opening rift. It's a piece of music that can cause you to stop dead in your tracks. It's the iconic announcement that a band from Seattle, Washington, was about to take over the world of music. It's informing you that Nirvana has arrived. If you're like me and you're a child of the 1990s, Nirvana needs no introduction. There's a very good chance that the band already holds a very special place in your heart. For many of us, Kurt Cobain was more than a front man. He was an individual that we could all relate to. We shared similar problems, dreams, and issues. Nirvana was a band that could speak for all of us, that could speak for a generation. The story we're about to tell is how a school field trip shattered the conceptions of what music could mean for a person. My name is Nick Salsby, and the book is called, quite a long title, it's called I Found My Friends, The Oral History of Nirvana. Nick Salsby is the author of I Found My Friends, The Oral History of Nirvana. Born in England, Soulsby found himself captivated by the music of Nirvana. He recounts the first time he listened to them. I guess it was a typical teenage thing that the, uh, the older lads on this school trip I was on to France, they liked Nirvana. A guy, I remember a guy on the train handed me this cassette with Nevermind recorded on one side and Bleach on the other. I just remember him handing it to me and saying, you'll like that. And... <sighs> Maybe at the time I didn't want to let him down, but I remember listening to the, it was the Smells Like Teen Spirit moment where you listen and immediately go, wow, that's great. And that kept going. I was only sort of 13 at the time, but I guess I was a late start on Nirvana. It was 1993 already. The next year, I'm on a family holiday and we get home from a, a wonderful day at Disney Magic Kingdom and the news comes on and... That's it. I, I remember the news bulletin. Uh, this guy saying something about Kurt Cobain, lead singer of this grunge supergroup Nirvana, has been found dead in his Seattle-based home um, of gunshot wounds to the head, apparently self-inflicted. Yeah, the fact that I still can repeat the word shows what an impact that had. Maybe it was just the age, but it did stick with me. And I've had other musical interests. I haven't spent 20 years just listening to Nirvana, but it's always been something it's nice to go back to because it's like revisiting an old friend. I guess I'm as surprised as anyone that I've spent two and a half years writing about them. That's the ultimate question, isn't it? What is it about Nirvana that even 20 years after Cobain's death, fans still identify with Cobain's music? I think that I think the point in anyone's youth where they are looking for some sort of meaning they're looking for where they belong in some sense if you become a music lover then at some point there'll be a band that really sparks that there'll be something that makes you latch on and think that sound matters in my case it was listening to this band and at the time it, it really was something that did give an identity there were people who were Pearl Jam fans and therefore wouldn't listen to Nirvana there were others of us who were Nirvana fans at the time, we wouldn't listen to Pearl Jam, um, and no one would listen to Guns N' Roses by that point. So it really did make this social difference at that age. Um, does it still mean the same things to me now? 
I don't think so, but recognising its importance to me at some point in my life, having affection and respect for that, doesn't mean I don't now recognise a lot more about the the difficulties of the Nirvana story, that in the end, I'm a 35-year-old man, and this idol of mine, once upon a time, is a guy who died eight years younger than I am now. And that's sometimes quite interesting to suddenly go, wow, I, I guess I didn't appreciate how young he was. It's something I now appreciate a lot better, but maybe you have to get to age 35 first. For Soulsby, identifying as a Nirvana fan gave him a sense of community, which he may not have felt before. It opened him to a music community he could relate with. It's this sense of belonging which helped motivate him to write his book. It, it started quite organically. I was writing blog posts about the band for quite a long time, just my thoughts, just ideas, because I enjoyed writing about them. At some point, I started looking at all these strange little bands who supported them at some point or other, and that really intrigued me, trying to find out who, who were all these people, uh, who, who were Swaziland white band. I'd never heard of them. Who were they? So I just gently started looking for them, trying to see if I could track down people in the various bands, the more people I found and the more people I found who were very friendly about this, it was amazing how cheery people were about talking about their past, the more it built. And gradually as it built, the kind of reasons, the kind of feelings that went into it developed. So I guess one thing that did end up motivating me was that sense that every icon ends up as someone you're out of touch with, ends up as someone untouchable. Um, especially once they're dead, of course, they become these sainted figures. And that kind of deification, that sense that he's someone sitting with a halo, it had never quite rung true for me. And the more people I spoke to who described him just as this quiet dude they walked past in a bar once, who described him as just some, I think someone calls the band, uh, a bunch of noisy hair farmers. That was a good quote. I enjoyed that one that all he remembers that I'd see in Nirvana is that somewhere on stage there's this bunch of noisy hair farmers making a racket. That more humorous, that more gentle view did feel more real. It did seem more human, that there were hundreds of bands out there. Something remarkable happened, but it didn't make them... It didn't make the people someone else. There were still these nice, quiet guys who, by chance and by hard work, had this massive impact. While working on this project, Soulsby discovered that for many of Cobain's friends and acquaintances, the passage of time had not healed their wounds regarding his untimely death. I guess, again, it goes back to that what motivated me during the writing of the book. There was a guy I met in Seattle who, who was a friend of Kurt Cobain's back during his sort of late teenage years, just when the band was starting, who you know, to this day has a... He has a steel box, and inside it, he's got, you know, he's got everything. He's got the first cassettes that Kurt recorded for him. He's got the recording of Nirvana's first demos. All of it's just there in that box, including a piece of paper from 1993 on which Kurt has scribbled his manager's phone number, and he handed it to him, saying, "Look, you haven't heard from me in a bit, but if you call this, you'll always be able to get hold of me." And off he went. That's the last he saw of him. But when I spoke to the guy. We'd never met before. This was a, a grown man in his 40s. He very quickly was going back to memories of his that hurt. He stood by the kitchen door and he said, right, 
I'm going to tell you a story or two. If I think I'm going to cry, I'm just going to walk into the kitchen and all I'd say is just leave me there for a minute, okay? And that, that did matter to me. Um, I flew out to Seattle for that week, just a few days after my grandfather had died. I handed the book to the publisher whilst I sat on the floor in a hospital in Spain because my, my father was dying. And just before the release of the book this year, my, my godfather died. So to understand Kirk Cobain not just as a superstar, but as someone who people felt about the way I feel about my loved ones, it just reinforced my desire not to sugarcoat him, but to make him real and treat him with respect. And uh, it, it, it did matter. Very few bands transcend time like Nirvana did. And it becomes very easy to put them on pedestals. But that's what I find fascinating about Soulsby's story. Nirvana is his band that belongs on a pedestal. They're the one band he always goes back to. But he doesn't want them on a pedestal. In fact, his whole purpose of writing his book isn't to mystify them, but to humanize them. So he has a very unique perspective to answer this question. Why does Nirvana and Kurt Cobain still matter? He's, he's the last icon of the rock era. Unfortunately, whether people like it or not, dying has an impact on how people are remembered. Uh, one of the first quotes in the book comes from a guy called Victor Poison Tet from a band in New York. And he says, why should we care about Kurt Cobain? Because he will never let us down. He will never release a song called The Smell of a New... Smells Like the Interior of a New Lexus. He'll never suffer a wardrobe malfunction during the Super Bowl. That was a great point. Once someone dies, they can't let us down anymore. He's also a very rare thing. Most superstars don't die right at the peak of their career. There might be an actor here or there. There might be a musician here or there. But it doesn't happen very often. John Lennon has been essentially out of music for half a decade. He's not at his peak. Michael Jackson, another artist who dies but isn't at his peak, to die so suddenly, so brutally, it does force that moment into people's minds. And it does always leave that question of what could have been achieved. He simply hadn't had time to disappoint people. So he released one album, Bleach. It's pretty good grunge rock. It's of its moment. He releases Nevermind, and it's a masterclass. And then they release in utero. That's a new direction. But again, it's a superb album. To release three albums and then be gone, we're talking less the Beatles, we're talking more Jimi Hendrix. Nirvana end up in that category where you can't help but wonder what might have happened next, what might have been achieved. So, uh, so that's part of it. In terms of their legacy, I think Kurt Cobain's big achievement is he makes... The idea of the rock star looks so absolutely ridiculous. And that's a really strange thing. Rock by the 80s, even Metallica, are a wonderful reaction against the fact that rock has become this leather-clad, sexist, racist, right-wing reactionary nonsense, whereby if you are a conservative politician, you can step on stage to a rock tune. That's not rebellion, that's reinforcement of the mainstream, that's reinforcement of what's safe already. Cobain comes in, he looks at all the wealth and fame that he receives, all the acclaim, and he doesn't like it. When people say that he's whiny or ungrateful, there's maybe a little bit of that, 
But the most important thing is it just looks absurd to him. And once it looked absurd to him, I think it became much easier for it to look absurd to an awful lot of people to see that all the posing, posturing, all the kind of celebration of wealth, it, it wasn't what rock music was meant to be. And unfortunately, I think he kills it stone dead. But I think that's where rock ends. We end up with uh, the next big rock moment is uh, the arrival of new metal, which is almost an admission that the new orthodoxy of the of hip hop has taken over instead. And we're right back to uh, to pomp, self-indulgence and a hefty degree of sexism. At the end of the day, Cobain was one of us. That is Salisbury's conclusion for why Nirvana still matters, and I totally agree with him. There's an authenticity to the music that cannot be replicated. That's why Nirvana belongs in the same category as The Beatles, Zeppelin, and The Clash. This is why the new documentary, Montage of Heck, is so acclaimed. It's reminding us of that authenticity. Well, the film itself, though, I'd recommend it. The director's got a very specific thing about uh, if you see it at the cinema, the cinema shows it at his chosen sound level. Actually, that's great. It's as near as you're going to get to hearing Nirvana live these days. The volume level is intense. There's times where it does just end up as a, a squeal of feedback in the background, just a kind of white noise going on. That's a really effective tool he uses. Even the sound around you ends up cut together, ends up quite chaotic. It also makes the quieter moments so impactful as well. I'd have to say it's a sad film. My view is it's a film about uh, mental illness and the damage that can be done to people, which isn't the whole substance of Kirk Cobain's It's just one part of it. But I, I think it's a fair one. I don't get the impression that uh, this was something that was uh, inaccurate, but it is just one component of his tale. So if you go to learn about his music and about the life of Nirvana, you might be disappointed. If you go to learn about the impact of Kurt Cobain's early family life and how it manifests in his later family life, then you'll have a good time. The simple act of a classmate sharing a cassette tape legitimately changed a life. So the next time a friend of yours makes you a mixtape or a mix CD, listen to it. You may just discover your new favorite band. This edition of The Looking Glass was written, recorded, and edited by Peter Creighton. The Looking Glass was created by Steve Anderson and me, Peter Creighton. A special thanks goes out to Nick Soulsby for the interview. For more information on Nick Soulsby, his website is nirvana-legacy.com. His book, I Found My Friends, The Oral History of Nirvana, is in bookstores now and is available on Amazon. Check it out, it's a great book. For more information on The Looking Glass, please visit our SoundCloud account at soundcloud.com slash lookingglasspodcast. You can also email the show at thelookingglasspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Peter Creighton, and cheers. <laughs>